Hello there, and welcome to episode 79 of the Night Gallery Podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about Little Girl Lost. It's uh, originally short, based on the short story by E.C. Tubb, um, the teleplay by Stanford Whitmore, and directed by Timothy Galfus. It is the, uh, the second story from episode 22 of season 2, and it is sadly the last story from this season. Our next painting on Night Gallery tells the story of an illusion, an invisible specter which guides and motivates and drives. And though you will never see her, this childish wraith, you'll know she's there. And we venture to suggest that you'll be chilled by the knowledge. Our painting is called Little Girl Lost. Our tale begins with a man called, uh, well, it's a man called uh, Tom Burke, who's played by Ed Nelson. And Tom has been given a job. He was originally a, a test pilot, but he's been given a very unusual job by the military now. His job is to uh, look after a Professor uh, Putman, who's played by William Wyndham, who uh, Night Gallery fans will remember as being from uh, Tim Riley. Well, Tim Riley's bar, I should say. Uh, our old uh, tired salesman from that story. The professor is a man who's a genius, but has now become unhinged. He's traumatized by the death of his daughter who died at the hands of a, a, a hit and run driver who was never found. And, but he's a man who's needed, he's wanted by the military for his work. That work is for a top secret project. The professor has been used to create a, a formula for a, a secret device. Now, Tom's job is to basically look after him as a bodyguard, but to do something more complicated than that. Tom's job is to make sure that the professor is basically kept happy in his mania. He has to uh, pretend that the professor's daughter is still alive and with them at all times. The professor sees her everywhere, and if this illusion is shattered, uh, a doctor, Dr. Cottrell, who's played by Ivor Francis, says that the man's mind will finally snap and he'll be lost. Um, he is, um, there is a theory going on in, uh, in Tom's head during this, and while he's busy looking after this fictional child and being being grabbed in the role and that is that the military want to keep the professor sane but at the same time they have a great power over him because at any point they're able then once they've got what they need they can effectively shatter his illusions pull the plug and those secrets will never be found again things look like they're becoming a bit unraveled though they, it, it appears that the professor has nearly come to the end of his, his, his work and has learnt what he needs to and is going to hand over the formula but they have an argument with another man over a, a child over the guy wanting this, the, uh, the empty chair that's sitting at a table in a restaurant and the professor, it is obvious is seriously coming apart at the seams 
Now oh, listen, you. There's not another chair in the place. Senor, I'm hungry. Senor, por favor, calmese. There's a larger table just over here. Please. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, that's right. Tom, the world is full of bad people. Now, that guy, forget him. How's work, hmm? Oh, it's finished. You can have the results tonight. That's what you wanted, isn't it? The final set of equations so that they could begin testing? Hmm? Tests on control fission of non-radioactive material. Bigger and better bombs at a fraction of the cost. Oh, the demented fools. When he hands over the, the formula, he's incredibly uh, volatile. He nearly kills them driving back. And in his panic, Tom shatters the illusion that the girl's still alive. But this doesn't seem to matter because at this stage, the professor is already kind of making peace and is um, angry and wants to meet up again with his daughter. And it comes apparent that perhaps he really knows already that the illusion is just that. We kick back to a conversation between the doctor and Tom where they speak about what's happening with the professor and their concerns about his mental state. And the doctor says that maybe, perhaps, this is in fact an indication that the professor knows what's happening and might try and meet again with his daughter the only way he knows how. The conflict that leads to insanity and the desperate need to escape from opposing problems. And that is the man who worked out the means to create fission with non-radioactive materials. What are you saying, Doctor? Do I have to explain? It's madness to give him the wrong formula. Madness? Or perhaps the perfect solution? Is it, is it too late? I'm afraid it is. When our world goes up in flames, he'll be revenged on the murder of his little girl. And at the same time, he'll be with her in the only way he can. The giant explosion, the ball of light is in fact the, the light from a nuclear bomb. It appears that in trying to reach back to his daughter, the professor has decided clearly that the best way to do that is to kill everybody in a huge ball of death. Um, so we get an Armageddon ending. Um, there's conflicted views, I would say, on this story. Um, I think a lot of people think that it's kind of been masked and, and knocked back from the caterpillar, but it has its, uh, its benefits. It's, it's a good piece. Um, I can see why they say that, because at its heart it's a story about the loss of a child, an unhinged man, and, 
and also people manipulating grief for their own aims. And also what happens when people fulfill their roles and don't do anything about it. Our man, um, our man Tom is, uh, is a, a well, he, he turns a blind eye to all this stuff and only really vocalizes concerns to others. He doesn't act to try and save our professor until, well, it's far too late by the time he finally voices his worries and his problems. Um, it's also got some freaky kind of scenes when they're basically talking to this you know, invisible child, brushing the hair or something that isn't really there. And um, that's kind of... It has a, a real power to it. It's, there's an uncanniness to it, which is really good. But what I would say is that, for me personally, the ending feels very cheap. I could imagine in Laird's mind it being a kind of like a cool way to end the series like a with an Armageddon big explosion thing but uh, for me personally it doesn't carry any weight it feels quite a, a cheap payoff and it tarnishes the story somewhat it's not terrible and there's some nice things in it but not enough to really carry it through that said uh, William Windham is excellent in the role I mean he carries all that pathos and sadness that he does also in the tearing down Tim Riley's bar and he's an excellent choice again there's some excellent work done in terms of the script with uh, Stanford Whitmore doing a very literal version of E.C. Tubbs' story but what I would say about it is that it's not as strong or as powerful as it could be mainly because of this, this cheap this cheap explosion ending which is obviously stock footage and doesn't doesn't gel with me in comparison to the rest of the tale um there was problems as you go as as always with night gallery um galfus only did two stories he did this and he did dead weight and um initially i think he was seen as somebody who would give some quite nice production values to the pieces that he did and indeed with this there's some nice some nice colour schemes and it works well and it looks very pretty for what is just you know people talking in a room for the majority of it but um, Galfus had problems with the way the TV system worked he didn't like it and I think he felt quite burnt by his experience on Night Gallery and Truth um, also perhaps more entertainingly Ed Nelson was uh, trying to stand for, for office at the time and um, yeah, the city council seat in California that I was going for, and people saw his, his, his people he were you know he, he was going up against saw this as a political broadcasting complaint. Um, in the end, he said, he said he had to withdraw because he'd appear, he was going to appear in a pilot for something called uh, Bannock, and that was. Um, it was such a big amount of money for NBC that uh, they couldn't pull the story, so he decided instead to step down from his uh, attempt at, at, uh, at office, which is, you know, a bit unfortunate, but uh, does show exactly, you know, um, how, you know, a lot of the time, how the money is, is important. Well, Jenny, I imagine that after two weeks of cotton candy and sweets, I wouldn't be very hungry either. <laughs> it does look wonderful, though. Nothing like sea air. Okay, so 
Um, and this isn't housekeeping. We're going to go very quickly into what happens next with Night Gallery and, and what happens in terms of the series. Because um, obviously you know that uh, the second, the third series is a very different looking beast to season two. So what I'd say first off is, how do you define success? Um, it, it had done reasonably well in... Um, in its viewing figures. It was an expensive show though. But um, it had done well. It struggled. It had come second frequently against the show CBS's series Mannix. But it would it, it in terms of the money, in terms of the demographics that it was hitting, it was seen as being successful. Less good was the impact of some critics. Uh, season two was marked early doors with some pretty spotty episodes. These have been ironed out by the time of the stuff we're talking here, but when you bear in mind, you know, the conversations we were having, oh, months ago now, but we were talking about, like, you know, uh, uh, Phantom of What Opera, those kind of small stories, and even some of the bigger ones weren't as, as solid as the writing later on. It was variable, and... NBC obviously wanted it to be bigger. Um, the decision was made to go to shift to a shorter format rather than the anthology format. In this case, to go to 22-minute episodes, which um, marks the series differently in terms of the way the writing could be done. Um, you have conflicting groups, basically. You've got NBC, who now want basically a straight-up horror, like Tales from the Crypt, the EC comic stuff. They wanted more stories like uh, The Dead Man, The Cemetery, that kind of stuff. You had Jack Laird, who wanted a mixture of uh, stories like Cool Air, those kind of oh, Lovecraftian tales, and also these amusing blackouts to kind of mix the moods and the tone and, and keep, keep the audience on their toes. And then you've got Sailing, whose name's at the top and feels part of it but in truth is probably the least important person in the eyes of the networks at this stage he's contracted in he has to perform it has to be Rod Serling's Night Gallery and what he wanted was more cerebral episodes things like the Caterpillar uh, but also you know the Messiah and Mott Street the turning down Tim Riley's bar those kind of works things that focus more on, on people this all came to a head when Serling handed over something called The View of Whatever. Uh, Laird had nodded it through and it had been agreed to go to production but NBC knocked it back for not being a straight up and down horror story and being far more family orientated in terms of talking about family rather than anything else. Um, at that stage Laird just lost it. He wrote a letter asking for his name to be taken off Night Gallery um, he felt that he couldn't contribute scripts anymore. Um, he wanted the series to be as strong as it could be, as powerful as it could be. And this was a man who was used to fighting against the networks for what he wanted with the Twilight Zone. But because he wasn't in that position, they didn't have the power of a sponsor like they did for a great deal of Twilight Zone. They were unable to, he was unable to have that sway. His solution to that really was because he was contracted in and because they insisted he kept that contract. His solution was basically to 
um, step back, just do his contracted work and not put in the amount of effort that he had done on season one and two. Um, obviously, that's detrimental to the series in general. Uh, the strongest stuff was coming from Serling. There's a, there are some noticeable and very strong exceptions, but without him behind it, it had a massive problem. That that was a that was a huge issue. Um, there was something else as well. I mean, <laughs> NBC didn't seem to understand what they had. Um, they um, they did, and I'd love to see them. I haven't got them. I haven't seen one. Um, the After Hours Tour talks about um, bumper stickers to, to publicise the third series. Uh, they also did posters, but they didn't say which pick of the paintings, but they weren't the, the, the favourite episodes, and there were some of the ones from season three, so no one had seen them, so no one bought them. But this bumper sticker was of, uh, you know, don't watch it alone, and a, and a woman clinging on to a skeleton which is exactly that EC Comics kind of image. Tales from the Dark Side, that kind of thing. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, that kind of imagery. But that had no real place in Night Gallery in terms of what Siri Serling wanted to do and indeed for a lot of it what Laird wanted to do. So instead we've got a network that wants basically as strong a horror as they can get on TV on a Sunday night. Oh, uh, yeah, and also it moved from its prime slots of Thursday to a bit of a graveyard in terms of being put on a Sunday. The reason why it's a graveyard was simply because it was moved around for American football. Um, you know, so it didn't start at the same time. I think, you know, the thing about having an anthology format is that, you know, you stick with it if you might not like one story, but you might like another one. With this, and particularly the fact that this third season, there's some strong stuff in there, but there's also some very weak stuff in there. And also the fact that people might have had to, you know, find it more than they used to have to. It was pretty much the death knell for, for Night Gallery. Um, that said, we've still got a way to go yet before we finally finish off this uh, the, the podcast. And there is some great stuff to come, so don't worry too much about that. Season 3 now is available on DVD, so unlike before when I was worried about whether, unless you had Hulu, you'd be able to watch it at all, now obviously everyone can watch them on DVD in Region 1. Um, so that's great news. Uh, so next week we discuss our first story, probably one of the strongest from Season 1, The Return of the Sorcerer featuring uh, Vincent Price and Bill Bixby. It's uh, some strong performances there and a great little tale. If you want to get hold of us, you can do it. it uh, Chris, com is my email address. Go to www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com and there's all our stories, our podcast, everything that we're doing on the website. There's links to our Facebook and our Twitter. And if you want to speak to me directly, the easiest way is always through my private Twitter, which is at orange underscore monkey. Say hello, and I'll say hello back. So, on that kind of downbeat note, uh, promise me, stick with it, we've still got some great stuff to come. So until then, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. (laughs)